We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is all in the beginning. Hello, everybody. You're tuned in to 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This is Evidence of Design. I'm your host, Jason Taylor, joined via Zoom by my good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. Perpetually arriving precisely when I mean to. And Mary Lawrence. Good morning. This is our first show of 2021. Folks, I didn't think we'd make it. You know, I, I really didn't think we'd I make it. I hope didn't make it, but here we are. <laughs> We're here anyways. First show of 2021. Well, hey, folks, Evidence of Design is all about critiquing income and wealth inequality. There's too much economic inequality in society, and this inequality is not an accident. It's not <laughs> inevitable. We have created this inequality by either allowing it to happen and not taking the steps needed to reduce it, or creating policies and practices that purposely support inequality. For instance, uh, you know, Citizens United Supreme Court decision and having, let's say, um, uncapped dark money campaign contributions to politicians contributes to economic inequality because then politicians take that money and they pass policies that favor big business and the wealthy, such as the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So stuff isn't that hard to find, folks. It's out there. We try to shine a spotlight on it and elevate our discourse to bring a class-based dialogue back in society because it used to be there and then we lost it. We lost it. But we, on evidence of design, I don't know if we'll find it again, but we'll, we'll sure as heck try. It's episode 125, so uh, we're happy to be wow. here even in 2021. Normally, we'd invite you to call in, but of course, COVID-19 is still going on, so that's why we are pre-recorded. Mary, uh, we will start out with the COVID-19 facts and figures as we normally do, but a quick plug for what we're doing for the rest of our hour today. We will mainly be spending the time talking about the Rochester's Police Accountability Board. They are in a working group uh, working on police reform and reinvention in Rochester. This past summer, Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, had an executive order to basically try to push all police departments across the state to re-examine their own policies and practices with different community groups that they are policing so that we can come together and say, how is policing working? How is it not working? What can we do to change it for the better, if anything? Of course, this was coming out of uh, the summer's worth of organizing and activism led by uh, you know, the, the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. So now the Police Accountability Board just this past week released their kind of uh, draft plan in response to some of the questions and topics they've been focusing on to revitalize and reform police in Rochester. And you can find that information at 
what is the website cityofrochester.gov forward slash PAB. Again, cityofrochester.gov forward slash PAB. We're going to be talking about some of the stuff that they have thus far found. For instance, according to the PAB, Rochester has twice as many police officers per resident than the average similarly sized city. According to the PAB, the RPD has used practices widely seen as controversial or harmful. According to the PAB, the RPD may lack an internal culture that keeps its officers and Rochesterians fully safe. And according to the PAB, Rochesterians from many backgrounds appear to want a thorough reimagining of public safety rather than just piecemeal reform of policing. So we'll get into that and more throughout the hour. Mary, why don't we go ahead and start with our latest COVID-19 facts and figures as we close out 2020 and usher in 2021. We're at a weird spot. You know, we're, we're nine months into this virus and uh, the first kind of round of vaccines have already made their way around. Lots to discuss on how that's working or not. But where do we stand locally or in Monroe County, the Finger Lakes region, Mary, in regards to COVID-19? Well, locally, we're still not doing that great. Uh, We're still kind of riding the post-Thanksgiving wave that has slowed down a little bit. So right right in the two to three week period after Thanksgiving, we were seeing six and seven hundred cases every single day uh, that were that were new. And in the past few weeks, it's more been in the four to 500 range. And unfortunately today, so again, it's, it's December 30th today, there are 625 new confirmed cases since yesterday. So that is again, kind of starting to rise. And I'm wondering if there's going to be another sort of raising of numbers of cases uh, post Christmas and post holiday gatherings. So just for a quick rundown, as I said, there are 625 new confirmed cases of COVID-19 as of today from yesterday. The seven-day rolling average of cases is currently at 512 per day, um, which is a lot of cases. That's a a positivity rate of about 8.6%. Looking at who is getting sick, you know, when Monroe County releases these numbers every day. They also release a breakdown of what age groups are being most affected. And it is actually, we're seeing the highest numbers of women today, at least in their 20s. There are 70 cases of women in their 20s who have uh, who have contracted and, and been tested positive. And it's generally people who are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s Uh, who are getting it the most. So people who are like school age children don't seem to be getting it as much um, in the county. But Mary, that's us. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, as a theory, it's probably people who are going to work. (laughs) But um, obviously, I don't know that for certain. You mean it's not our late night parties that we do? Oh, well, I guess it could be those two. I haven't seen anyone but you, Matt, and two cats for the past nine months. The cats haven't tested positive yet. <laughs> Not yet, no. no. Um, As a person between the age of 25 and 45, I'm very concerned about these. <laughs> yeah, well, so the good news is that we're 
well, the good news for our age group is that there haven't been people our age dying so much. They're generally 50 plus in that range. Uh, that said, people who are in their 20s who live with or come in contact with people who are older really do have to continue to be careful, as we all do. But people especially uh, who are older are, as we've been told over and over again, are more vulnerable to the disease and to faring badly from the disease. Uh, on that note, there were 33 new deaths announced today. The total for our country, or for our county is 592 to date. Um, these deaths did not all happen yesterday. They, they occurred between the dates of December 16th and 29th. And there are almost 1,000 people in the Finger Lakes region who are in the hospital right now, and over 100 are in the ICU. And those are my numbers. Yeah, so we know that we're still averaging more than 500 cases of COVID-19 per day in Monroe yes. County. That's a lot of cases. We're at around an 8% positivity rate. Uh, you know, you've, we've been there for a while, Mary. 8% is a lot. We we've know been there that, for over a month. We've been there for several weeks. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of weeks now. You know, we're, we're close to two months now at those numbers. Uh, we also know that Governor Andrew Cuomo has recently changed, you know, in the past month or so, how we identify which areas need to be kind of shut down. They used to be kind of the, uh, you know, the yellow, orange, red zone. I think those are still in use. But the main indicator now is to what extent are hospitals nearing full capacity. And that's kind of the biggest indicator that's going to be used to say, should an area shut down? According to our local data, you know, hospitals are, uh, I think, you know, more full than normal, but they're not full enough such that um, the Monroe County area or the Finger Lakes region is nearing shutdown, to my knowledge of the latest data as of, you know, the end of 2020. Uh, right. However, so right now yeah. they're hovering, to put a number on it, the hospitals are, are hovering around 65 to 70% capacity, both in regular population, so regular beds and in the ICU. Um, and the metric that would put us in the red zone is if they are on track to hit 90% um, full. Right. And red zone is everything shuts down. So uh, we're, we're keeping an eye on the hospital system. And obviously, you know, well, we as in, you know, the governor and the powers that be, what we can do, what you and I can do, Mary, on the ground as people going about our day-to-day -day lives, trying to survive in, in this society is to continue to wear masks, to continue to practice physical distancing, and to not be in enclosed spaces with other people for prolonged periods of time. Those are still the three best things to do. And there's going to be soon a fourth best thing to do, and that is to get the COVID-19 vaccine, whichever brand of them you want. We live in such a wonderful capitalist society that not only do you get to stand in the cereal aisle and spend five minutes deliberating which box of cereal you want, but now you can decide what brand of vaccine you want. How excited are you? Do you want the Pfizer vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, the vaccine that I just brewed in my basement? Whichever one you want, you can get it. <laughs> I'll take that last one. Yeah, just, want, just kidding about the last one. <laughs> I want the one that comes with a little toy in the box. <laughs> Dude, I used to love Lucky Charms or whatever because they got me toys. And um, I feel bad for my parents for crying to them to have me 
by Lucky Charms or whatever. Um, so, you know, uh, jokes aside, vaccines are out there. Uh, they're, they're being distributed, obviously, according to various parameters and whatnot. If you're in the healthcare field, really, you're first up. And, and uh, you know, uh, that is out there. And I think I will get a vaccine once I'm able to do it. I don't see any reasons why I'm personally worried about getting it. I trust Dr. Fauci and others who say it's safe to get. And I think that the vaccines are a great step to make sure that we can uh, go about our lives in a safe way that you know will not cause those around us from getting uh, infected with COVID-19 and hopefully not getting infected severely with it. So those are the COVID-19 facts and figures. Thanks, Mary, for providing those. And as a reminder, you're tuned into 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester, and this is Evidence of Design. Let's turn now to the feature for today's show, and that is talking about the Police Accountability Board in Rochester. They are in a working group on police reform and reinvention. As mentioned at the top of the hour, this is something Governor Andrew Cuomo spearheaded through an executive order this past summer at the height of the uh, Black Lives Matter program protests and movement in response to police brutality and, of course, racism and lack of justice for um, Black individuals and the African-American community. Police Accountability Board uh, came out with their draft kind of um, plan uh, reforms that could potentially affect Rochester's police department. And you can find that on cityofrochester.gov forward slash PAB. Again, cityofrochester.gov forward slash PAB. They urge the city of Rochester by the end of next year, or I guess this year, 2021, depending on what time you're tuned in, to drastically expand staffing for and the use of first responder systems that substitute police officers with, say, social workers and mental health providers. This is something we know has been in the community sort of dialogue for a while saying, why does a police officer need to be the Swiss army knife for, for public problems? If someone is facing a distressing situation, why send an officer armed with a gun whose job it is to uphold the rule of law, you know, to enforce the law. If someone needs mental health support, do they need a police officer there? Why not send, for instance, a social worker or a mental health provider? That's just one example of the ways that we as a society can come together and say, huh, How can we better help ourselves and each other through interventionary systems like first responder systems as opposed to sending an armed officer with a gun? So the PAB is urging the city of Rochester to rethink its first responder systems. They also urge there to be more training and disciplinary policies to end the RPD's use of uh, military-like tactics and uh, you know breathing restrictions and no-knock warrants. These things that are highly criticized to make the police department do more harm than good. There's also urging by the PAB to, uh, you know, to protect residents and officers themselves by promoting and dismantle, promoting the dismantling of white supremacy, misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia to really take a look, deep dive into the RPD's culture and say, what could be going on in the police culture that could contribute to harmful effects that happen to citizens? We know, for instance, the vast majority of the RPD is white. We know that the vast majority of the RPD lives outside of the city of Rochester. Those can, that can create uh, situations that end up reifying, if not capitalizing on systems of racism or misogyny 
uh, and you know white supremacy that ends up hurting citizens as opposed to police being able to serve and protect them. So lots of other things that the PAB recommends. Again, you can find this on cityofrochester.gov forward slash PAB. Mary, what else should we know about the PAB's report? So you just mentioned where people can find the report, which is really important because not only can all of us as community members in Rochester and in the Rochester area, not only can we read the report and think about it, but we can also comment on it. And the city and this this working group is specifically looking for community input at the moment. Um, so I want to share a couple of questions or, or, or comments that are used in the draft answers at, towards the end of the draft, there are some community testimonies. So they went and talked to people and asked what they, how they imagine public safety could be changed in the city of Rochester. And these are some things that as community members, we can think about when approaching this form uh, to help, you know, to help ourselves sort of think of where we can go. So the questions that these testimonials include are, who am I? So who am I as a person reading and thinking about public safety? This is who I am and what I do. The second, when I imagine a Rochester that makes me feel safe, this is the role that police officers play in that city. The third question, this is what if anything, I think I should change or I think should change about policing to make people in Rochester safer. The fourth, this is when I think people who are not police officers should respond first to a 911 call and who I think those responders should be. And the fifth question is knowing that Rochester spends roughly $150 million on policing each year do I believe that to make our community safer, any of these funds should be spent elsewhere? If so, where do I think they should be spent? So these questions are designed to not only think about what's bad about policing or what needs to be changed, but also who should have those responsibilities that police officers currently have and how can the funds be reallocated to make that work. Uh, so community members, any individual or organization can comment either using the format of those questions or by reading through and thinking about what is in the answers. Uh, and you can do that via email. So you email pab at cityofrochester.gov uh, by January 15th, 2021. Um, so the, as I mentioned, you can use those questions. You can include new or revised statements, revised recommendations, or any other information that is relevant to the working group or the executive order. So it's really broad of what you can think about, what you can include. Um, the document is very long, but it's very well put together and very approachable. Uh, and yeah, I, I think it's a great way to interact with our city organization. Yeah, Mary, we've covered a lot of sort of government reports on the show, and I, and I, they get a bad rap for being boring. Uh, but I, I think that things that are in depth are often a good sign that 
we have people in the government who know what they're doing and are being diligent and thorough with the tasks that they are charged with doing, you know? So if, if, if a document is 85 pages long, um, which this PAB report happens to be, I, I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect all citizens to read an 85 page document at the same time. I, you know, I don't think it's necessarily worth criticizing things for being long when life is complicated and requires lots of information. But I totally agree with you, Mary, that I think the PAB deserves applaud here because the document is very well put together in terms of being clear about what different sections there are, what specific questions they were asked to research into, and then providing both very short, brief, you know, too long, didn't read responses, and then longer, full responses to each question. Very well put together. Again, cityofrochester.gov forward slash PAB. And you, as a listener, as a citizen, as a member of of City of Rochester in particular, can uh, send your comments and thoughts about how the RPD could be revitalized and what, you know, policing should mean for us in the city. You can share your thoughts. That's really important. I've learned as I've gotten older and more mature and wiser that, you know, if you're going to critique something, you should always share how you think that could be better. It's not enough just to tear something down. It's really important to also say, okay, I don't like the way this thing is. Here's a way that I think could make it better. So it's, it's just really important and productive. I've gone to so many meetings where people are just sort of poo-pooing on things and then you don't get anywhere because it turns into kind of like a grief fest <laughs> and no one's sort of channeling energies in a productive way, you know? Uh, so I, I think this is a great example to say, hey, here's what I'm bothered at, but also here's what I think we could do better at. Yeah. And this document, we should also mention, isn't this one in particular is obviously a draft. It isn't final. But the understanding of this document is that even when the answers are set with more community input, they are still proposals that are meant to initiate community discussion with the understanding that it's going to take some time to to put things into place and to really figure out how we want our public safety system to look at. Um, And so why don't we talk about some of the things that were included as recommendations in the report? So if you don't have time to read it as a listener, then maybe you'll have some idea of what things are in there. So the police accountability board has these, initial recommendations, which they would like the city to implement by the end of 2021. So there is a time cap. It is the next coming year. Um, So these include drastically expanding staffing for and the use of first responder systems that substitute police officers with social workers and mental health providers. And this one might remind you of one of the questions that I mentioned, which was, you know, who should respond to 911 calls and what organization are these people from? Um, so one of those recommendations is in fact, putting that question in and, and the responses they've gotten from that question into effect specifically by saying, let's not have police officers go alone or sometimes not at all to respond to 911 calls, but instead let's have social workers and mental health care providers who are prepared to work with people in crises, either in mental health crises or domestic crises, uh, 
who are prepared to help those people and talk them down in a way that is nonviolent. The next recommendation is to support a community-led process to educate Rochesterians about how the city's limited public safety dollars can be spent, learn the spending priorities of city residents, and develop a budget that reflects those priorities in staffing and funding levels. This is one that I personally don't think I would know a lot about. And so I appreciate that there's an effort and I don't even know what this is going to look like, but how, you know, how a budget is built and where the, that money then can, can then be allocated is something that maybe a lot of Rochesterians like me wouldn't know. You know, we maybe have some ideas about how we want the money to be spent, but in reality, there are, you know, lines in budgets for things and, uh, so having a better understanding about how that money can be spent can help us imagine how we can reallocate those funds. Yeah, Mary, let me give a specific example there from the PAB's report and just remind listeners that you're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We're talking about the Rochester Police Accountability Board and their draft plan in a working group that they are on about police reform and reinvention for the RPD in the city of Rochester. Mary, the, the PAB is recommending the city rethink our first responder system and also to educate citizens about how city dollars could be spent in regards to public safety. A, a specific example that really struck with me from the report is that the PAB listed out examples using data from different cities and communities across the entire country, and they compared the RPD in Rochester to other cities of similar sizes with similar crime rates, with similar geographies and with similar demographics. And with all of those different variables, the PAB say that they found that uh, the RPD in Rochester, we have too large of a police force and that you know our size, our crime rate, our geography and our demographics does not fully explain why we have so many police officers in Rochester. They write, quote, that perhaps the answer to, you know, Rochester's large police force lies in the story of a Rust Belt city maintaining the same levels of service that it once provided when its population was significantly higher. Historical employment and population figures suggest this may not be the case. Rochester peaked its population in 1950 when it had roughly 330,000 residents. That year, the RPD had roughly 430 sworn officers, and in the years since, the size of the Rochester's police force increased by two-thirds, while its population shrank by one-third. In other words, Rochester's officer-to-resident ratio has nearly tripled in the last 70 years. So I think this is a good example of the types of things that you'll find in the report to say, huh, did, did we know that, you know, we have a comparably large uh, police force in Rochester? Did we know that perhaps, you know, we don't, it's not because that we have a, a unique large crime rate. It's not because of the size of our city. It's not because of demographics of our city that make our large force unique. There's perhaps something going on and maybe our police force is just too large and we should rethink about how our first responder system could be changed. For me, that was a really helpful thing to read to put things in context. And, and there's more of that in this report. Yeah, that's a great point. And 
you know, thinking about the size of our police force in relation to the number of people in the city is really important because for people who have not seen or made a comparison of other cities, that might not be something that we'd think about doing. Um, so as we're reading this report and thinking about how Rochester is working to change its police force, it would be interesting to actually like look at what other cities are doing and how their police forces have developed, whether they're similar sizes or, or not. Um, so should I go into maybe some of the other recommendations that have been made? I'd just like to point out real quick that you mentioned that we have a police force of about 850 people. We have something like, I think, 230,000 resi residents living in the city. Yeah. I was just looking this up because I was curious. Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed, has a population of about 430,000 people and about 880 police officers on their force. So they have almost double our population with about the same number of police. Yeah, ab absolutely, Matt. You know, it's doing those statistics is pretty easy and it's, it's really quite revealing. In this PAB report, they write that, you know, the Rochester to resident ratio in Rochester is larger than cities like Atlanta, Boston, Dallas, LA, Miami, and San Francisco. You know, when, when you put it that way, it's really quite shocking. Uh, how about more locally? Let's zoom in. They write that Rochester has over three times as many officers per resident as Brighton, Gates, or Greece. That Rochester has nearly five times as many police officers as Webster. They have six times as many police officers per resident as Ogden. And so, you know, putting it this way, it, it's like, huh, I didn't know that. That's a lot of police officers. Why do we have that many police officers? You know, and, and could those dollars be spent elsewhere? And are, are the police contribute? You know, what is the point of the police? Is it to protect and serve? Is it to protect and serve? Um, by the way, uh, a plug for another podcast. Um, Radio Lab is a, is a nationally syndicated podcast. They had a, they had a fascinating uh, recent episode on sort of that idea of police doing protect and serve you know google radio lab police protect and serve or whatever and you can take a listen it's it's fascinating uh dive into the history of policing and like where the missions for police come from and also like huh maybe the police don't really exist to protect and serve maybe they exist to do something else and that's uphold a capitalist order you know <laughs> uh, that's a discussion for another time you know i also want to say too it's it's sort of glaring um, on this protect and serve narrative that uh, unfortunately on, I don't know if it was Christmas Eve or Christmas day or early Christmas morning, I think it was, you probably saw in the news that there was a suicide bombing in, um, I believe it was Tennessee Nashville. and yeah, Nashville. Yeah. And there was, there was an individual, a, a white individual who, um, you know, was a suicide bomber. He, he went to downtown Nashville and he, he blew up a truck full, an RV full of explosives that he made. Um, and it, it came out today, you know, the date of recording on Wednesday, December 30th, that the police in Nashville had been made aware by this individual's ex-girlfriend that this individual, the suicide bomber, was um, preparing explosives in his RV. So the girlfriend called the police about this, you know, more than 12 months before this happened. And uh, the police essentially, you know, knocked on the guy's door. Um, he didn't answer. And then they said, well... <laughs> That's um, that's too bad. You know what that sounds like to me, Jason. What's that? You know what that sounds like to me? What's that? Sounds like you need more police. <laughs> that 
Because only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is to have uh, eight times as many good guys with a gun. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So I, I think this is just an example, a sad one. You know, we're laughing. It's, it's really sad. But um, we know that the police are really not that great at being proactive at preventing crime. I know it's hard to put a number at this, and there was something in, in the city budget. They're also not good at solving crimes either. Or right. following up on crimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is a consistent issue with domestic violence, for example, where time and time again, people who are in domestic violence situations will report the person who is harming them and will be dismissed. You know, it happens all the time on all kinds of levels right and so i i think what like i think people think the police are more effective than it as a force is and i i think what is most effective about the police force is the idea that there is a police force out there that will hold you accountable for misdeeds <laughs> not them actually doing that i think it's just the idea this self-governance this um <laughs> you know this this fear this governmentality to use a michel foucauldian sense of the term that we police ourselves because of the fear of the police i'm not saying that's a good thing i'm just saying i think that that's what the most effective form of policing is in our modern society is that we think the police are effective <laughs> when in fact they're uh they're statistically speaking not very good at preventing crime and and i would argue what's really good at preventing crime so here's the thing you can't just critique you have to offer a solution here's my solution i think what's really good at probably preventing crime more so than a modern police force a modern militarized police force is providing human beings their basic means to meet their material needs so if you provide human beings with guaranteed shelter income health care and employment uh there are not as many reasons to, be employment. to commit crime yeah you don't even need to go for employment you just need income you know you need you guaranteed need, basic income. You just need to be able to live to survive yep. you just need just, to meet people's basic needs and uh you know not treat them like animals right and uh, if you do that, you know, if you give human beings the basic material needs, I think crime uh, all but, you know, all but disappears. And of course, there will still be bad actors, bad eggs in a carton. And there will also be people who still need interventions. You know, there are people who will still have mental health crises and um, there will be disputes that break out and whatnot. And there are other sort of community mediations that can happen uh, that are not necessarily an armed police force who whose real purpose is to protect private property. Let's be honest. That's what that's what police were invented for. Uh, that's what police are here. You know, you ask a police officer, they wouldn't tell you this uh, because they, you know, rightfully so. They don't necessarily think of it in this way, but it's what their effect is, is to protect private property and capitalism. You know, uh, heaven forbid you trespass on someone or break a uh, break a commodity. Uh, but, you know, if there's a domestic violence case or a report of someone building bombs in an RV in their backyard, well, Private property hasn't been destroyed yet until that person, well, blows up the RV and, and damages an AT&T store, you know, then, uh, then, the, then, then uh, the, the line has been crossed. Yeah, it's not that the RV blew up. It's that the store was damaged right. by the explosion. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I think the, from what I've read, the police did a really good job in Nashville of, you know, waking people up and rousing them because, you know, because of this individual's actions and telling them to, to get out of the area because there was a bomb scare. So, you know, well, he warned them. Yes. The, like the, they wouldn't have to do that unless he hadn't, I assume. 
sent out a text message because it doesn't sound like they were taking his girlfriend seriously. Yeah, the Suicide Bombers RV was broadcasting messages saying that this truck was going to explode. So he was broadcasting the fact that there was a bomb threat. Um, and so the, I think there was he was four... a considerate terrorist. Yes. And so there was four officers who seemed like they did a really good job at, you know, waking people, being brave, being around there and getting people out. And, I, you know, that's great because I, I, I don't know how effective a, a normal sort of, you know, quote, normal community member could do that, you know, because because if I knock on my neighbor's door, they'll just get really mad at me and tell me the you know, to buzz off. If a police officer knock on someone's door, uh, then you, you take it more seriously, you know? So to yeah. be fair, um, that's, that's a helpful instance where we grant people the ability to have that authority. But, um, you know, uh, hopefully that authority is used for good things like protecting people and not just protecting private property and upholding uh, exploitative capitalism. Mary, sorry to derail us a little bit there. I don't know if that was derailing. It's just, you know, one more reminder that you're tuned into Evidence of Design at 100.9 FM WXIR. We're talking about what, what we think is a, a really helpful, really well done uh, draft report by our local police accountability board that you can find at cityofrochester.gov forward slash PAB. Yeah, but I think, Jason, just to piggyback a little bit on what you were saying, I, I think too often people don't recognize that when we think about issues surrounding policing, we don't necessarily think about the issues that cause people to commit crimes. We don't think about how our economic system incur. Well, it, it causes people to become desperate in many situations because they can't take care of themselves because they can't make enough money to pay for rent or food or anything. And so too often we approach the problem of crime with what are we going to do with these people instead of looking at it as, what are we going to do to make it so these people don't feel like they need to commit crimes anymore? Right. That's a great point, Matt. You know, um, there's an organization called Food Not Bombs. They're, I'm going to butcher this, but a big part of what they do is try to promote, you know, um, food security for people. And they do so in a way that critiques the amount of money that America spends on its military and um, American foreign policy that they would describe as imperialistic. And so uh, what Food Not Bombs has highlighted in, in over the years is that uh, police departments will often prosecute people for digging through dumpsters for food. And they view that as illegal for whatever reason, because, you know, city leaders and whatnot have ordered police departments or police leaders themselves have made rules to enforce this because cities don't like it when there are unsightly citizens you know homeless i was just gonna say, was gonna say it's unsightly right so you know we are uncomfortable witnessing the failures of our economic systems and so it's easier to get those people out of Can't our you just find a private place to starve to death exactly you, you have know, to do that out in the open which is why prisons exist, you know, so things of that nature. So uh, exactly, Matt, Food Not Bombs then has, um, has you know, sort of critiqued this. And uh, instead of prosecuting people for digging through dumpsters, why don't we instead create laws that would prosecute, you know, food 
providers who dump out, who throw away food instead of giving it to homeless shelters or something. You know, there, there's like, there's, there's a different way to think about this where why are you putting the responsibility on the individual who for no fault of their own can't afford to buy food when instead the fault could be on the business that is wasting the food to begin with. Um, that's just one example. It's not a perfect example. There's better ways more holistically to make our economic system work for everyone like universal basic income. But that's just an example of how our system's kind of backwards where we end up create, we end up incentivizing crime through our economic system. And therefore the police uh, aren't doing us justice or protecting and serving when they are prosecuting people who are incentivized to, in a societal sense, cause crime when in a human sense, it's called meeting their basic needs. Mary, uh, is there any other angle we should take on this PAB feature? Well, I, I mean, the things that you've been talking about are super important and don't come into this report at all. So I've been trying to kind of figure out how to relate them. Um, because, I mean, what we're talking about, and I think what we try to focus on in our show in general is how we can prevent, or at least in this lens, how could we prevent crime by making people's lives better to begin with that would reduce the amount of crime, would reduce the need for police officers um, and for uh, the violent responses that we have seen. And so maybe, maybe I will loop back to the rest of the recommendations because they focus specifically on the themes of violence and what we see in police departments. So this is going back more to how the police respond to the crime that we are seeing. It is uh, moving away from the prevention that while ideal is unfortunately not a reality at the moment. So I'll just briefly go through the other recommendations. The next two are kind of tied together in the theme of violent responses to crime. Um, so, you know, when a police officer sees someone digging through a dumpster, how do they respond to them? You know, is it in a nice way? Is it in a not nice way? Um, how could these be better is kind of the way that we need to think about these next two recommendations. So one of them is that the city needs to create trainings and disciplinary policies that end RPD's use of breathing restrictions, like chokeholds, um, reduce chemical weapons like tear gas, protest response devices like sound cannons, and high-risk practices like no-knock warrants. And the other one is to boost funding for training, prevention, and response systems within RPD that address work-related stress and trauma in ways that shield officers, their families, and the people they serve. So these two are sort of tied together in protecting all parties, but it doesn't go far enough. Like, you know, as, as we've been talking about, they don't quite go far enough into how can we prevent. I think because those are things that cannot be worked on in a report like this or in a system when we're trying to work within a system, they're much broader systemic issues. And Mary, was it Eric Garner? I should know this in New York city who was choked to death for trying to sell a cigarette. 
was it like an illegal, you know, well, illegal. it was already illegal. Like, like right. the, all this stuff just reads like, I don't it doesn't put a lot of confidence in me because it just sounds like the, the sort of usual ho-hum reforms that people always roll out whenever another black person gets killed by police. Like, oh, well, we'll teach them to not choke people. And it's like, okay, they're still going to choke people. Or they're still going to shoot them. You know, they're, they're, they're going to find a way to do it. It's going to happen because that's what the police are. What do you um, mean by Unfortunately, <laughs> it, is, it is an issue. But maybe let me, before we discuss this, let me just list or go through the last two because they have to do with transparency. And I think that might be sort of the direction that we're going. So just the last two recommendations. And again, these are to be done by the city within the next year uh so that is you know it seems like a long time frame but a year isn't that long so one of the last two recommendations is to make policing transparent by collecting and releasing comprehensive data on the rpd's enforcement patterns internal culture and policing practices while making public all aspects of officer training so that way the public would be able to figure out how the officers are trained which would uh change things like the response to Daniel Prude's death, where the police departments and the police union's defense was, well, this is all part of their training. So we would, the, the public would then have access into, to know how these police officers are trained and would be able to access in theory, the data uh, of how they are responding to any circumstance. And the last one is, to protect residents and officers by investigating and dismantling structures of white supremacy, misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia that may exist in the RPD's culture and practices. I don't know specifically how that one is tangible, how that can be, you know, assessed over the next year, but I think that one is maybe the most important of all of these because we need to think about why officers are responding in a violent way to certain people. You know, why are they killing more black people than any other race? You know, why are, you know, why are they even arresting someone for selling cigarettes or going through a dumpster? You know, those are, those are kind of things that some people will get arrested for while others won't. And so that kind of encompasses all of the other recommendations and yet is the hardest to, you know, to quantify. Yeah, Mary, you just read through uh, the, the main recommendations by the Rochester Police Accountability Board. You're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We're talking this hour about the PAB's draft report on how the RPD could be reformed and reinvented. You can learn more about that report at cityofrochester.gov forward slash PAB. And they, the PAB, are accepting community, you know, they're not accepting, they are they are wanting community input to them uh, as to how you think uh, the RPD is either not 
protecting and serving or not meeting a public definition of public safety and what could be done to make our public safety and the police department better. You can let them know what you think should be done by emailing them at pab at cityofrochester.gov or again, going online, cityofrochester.gov forward slash pab. Uh, Matt and Mary, we could keep talking about this. I really kind of want to get to this last uh, story just uh, about uh, County Executive Adam Bellow signing an emergency order to cap third-party delivery service fees for restaurants, because I think that's really important and will be untimely later on. Any last words about the PAB and policing? I know this is a continuing issue in our community and that uh, it'll come up and should continue to come up, and uh, we need to continue to make our voices heard about that. Any last points to bring up? Not a last point, but I do just think that this is a really well put together document. I think it's worth looking into, even if you don't have a lot of time, it's very easy to go in and read even just the, the brief answers or the, the page long summary at the beginning will give you a really good idea of what the goals of the police accountability board is or are. Um, and then you can, you can give your recommendations if you agree with those or even try to push them farther. Excellent. Well, as I mentioned, I want to get to this last story for our last uh, sub 10 minutes on evidence of design. And this is this week, our county executive uh, Democrat, Adam Bellow, signed an emergency order which caps third-party delivery service fees for restaurants. So let's let's define that. You know, restaurants, uh, normally pre-COVID-19, people would go sit down in a restaurant and order food. And obviously you could also order takeout at most restaurants. If Some you've never been to a restaurant before, let me describe the process. To you. Let me just, let me break this down to you on a granule level, what it is like. Do you like. remember when? <laughs> back in my day. <laughs> have you ever seen photos? Have you, have you looked back in your photos and seen you with other people, groups of people without masks on? Oh, I, I instantly get like repulsed. I'm like, oh God, how did I, how was I so close to other humans? <laughs> well, this is why we're defining what a restaurant is, Matt, because it might be foreign to those who are nine months old or less. <laughs> I've just completely dissociated from my life previous to this pandemic. So I could use a refresher. Your brand, you knew Matt. <laughs> Well, hey, um, there's these third-party delivery services. You've probably ordered from them before, you know, Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats. You might have not known, you know, we covered a Supreme Court case on this on this show 100 episodes ago on how credit card companies charge merchants, so charge stores. If you use a credit card at a store, they charge the store, I don't know, one, two, three percent of the transaction in fees to use the credit card. Well, same thing essentially happens for like Grubhub, DoorDash, and Uber Eats. They end up charging the restaurants that you're ordering from if you use Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats, let's say, to deliver food to you from that restaurant. So, hey, you go to, uh, you know, uh, restaurant A, you order your meal from restaurant A, it comes to $10, you pay $10, the restaurant gets, let's say, $7 of your 10, and the $3 from your 10 ends up going to Grubhub, DoorDash, or Uber Eats. That's, that's well, they, beyond they the tip that you would give fees. them. They, that, restaurants often pass off those fees onto the buyer, am I correct? Well, that's that's what can happen, Matt. Yes, is that one of these two 
companies, so either the restaurants or the delivery service can end up passing increased costs off to the consumer, right? So Grubhub can increase the rates where you have to pay, increase the tips, increase the fees to you, or they or the restaurant can increase the prices of their meals. So, you know, that is what can happen because of this sort of intermediary that these delivery services are doing. <clears throat> And so, uh, you know, it's been, if you've been sort of following the news, restaurants have complained that it, they feel sort of uh, like they're, these companies are being very predatory towards them because they can charge more than 30% of the meal price, say, um, just to deliver their food to customers. And restaurants really companies need to rely on Companies in America on acting predatorily? What? <laughs> So we need to redefine what a restaurant is, but we do not on evidence of design need to redefine the fact that companies in this capitalist exploitative system can be bad. <laughs> we don't need to do that. So, hey, Adam Bell this week said um, in Monroe County, a delivery service provider cannot charge a delivery fee of more than 15% of the purchase price of any order. It was 15%? Now they cannot charge. So DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, for instance, cannot charge a restaurant more than 15% of the purchase price of the order for the delivery. Oh, yeah. I'm just saying, like, that's. that's a yeah, lot. still a lot. Yeah, it's still a lot. I agree. Some predation, you know, just a little. So, so why I wanted to bring the story up is because when I read this, my very first thought that Adam Bello signed this emergency order in Monroe County to prevent these right. national companies from charging, uh, you know, a certain amount to local restaurants in Monroe County. I was like, wait, the government can just do this. <laughs> like I didn't know the government, where does the government get the power to intervene in this way? Yeah, and I thought I, they were really apolitical body. Yeah, I, I thought the government wasn't political. Right. Like a, they're like a figurehead. They're like the, the emperor of Japan. <laughs> I had the same exact thought in my mind way back in uh, the spring when the government passed the, the trillion dollar CARES Act. We're like a week before COVID was a reality for everyone in March. I remember all these stodgy old Republicans and Democrats arguing in debates on the floor of like, we can't pay for health care. It's going to cost money. Government doesn't have money. And then like a week later, they passed a $2.2 trillion CARES Act that gave everyone essentially a, a one-time 12 $1,200 check, expanded unemployment compensation by $600 a week, and provided billions of dollars in loans to small businesses that they don't have to pay back. I was like, yeah, they must have all just checked their other coat pocket. <laughs> Dude, I love this. And this is why we do evidence of design to say, folks, the government has the power to change our lives for the better. If we tell them to do this if we allow them to do this by the way guess which party in monroe county did not take up this legislation it was supposed to be rachel barnhart in the legislature proposed this so it's supposed to be a legislative thing and then county executive adam bello would have just signed it instead adam bello had to do an emergency order he had to do it through executive action as is so common nowadays because our legislatures in america suck um guess which party locally didn't want to have this change happen um the Republican Party, <laughs> the local Republican Party did not prevented a vote on this legislation to prevent these local companies, to prevent these national companies from charging exorbitant fees to local restaurants because the Republican Party is morally and intellectually bankrupt. <laughs> well, they, they take an originalist approach. You know, the, the founding fathers, when they, yes. when they set out the Bill of Rights, uh, <laughs> 
they're very concerned about the the decades or centuries long uh, histories of discrimination against uh, companies like Uber Eats. Let's not mince words. The Republican Party says they want to defend the U.S. Constitution. They're defending their interpretation of the Constitution, which is fairly accurate for the founders. And that's that thou shall have chattel slavery in the U.S. and thou shall also have, uh, you know, monopolistic capitalism. (laughs) It's like, that's what the Republicans mean when they say defend the U.S. Constitution. Too bad the Democrats also think that way uh, pretty similarly too, but at least they're not as bad. Anyways, that ends Jason's rant for uh, first episode of Evidence of Design in the year 2021. We got to go, folks. Stay in touch with us, radioeod at gmail.com. You can find our past episodes anywhere you find a podcast by searching for Evidence of Design. We're also on YouTube by searching for the Evidence of Design YouTube channel. We got a brand new logo. It looks sweet. Check it out. Check us out. Evidence of Design anywhere you get your podcasts or Radio EOD on Facebook and Twitter. I was your co-host, Jason Taylor. Drum my good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. Yeah. And Mary Lawrence. <laughs> Stay well. Thanks for tuning in to your local grassroots community radio station, 100.9 FM, WXIR, only here in Rochester. Until next time, folks, be well, be safe, happy new year, and bye-bye.